This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. I'm speaking today with the historian Andrew S. Curran about his new and very fine book, Diderot and the Art of Thinking Freely. You write, Andrew, with an exuberance and verve worthy of your subject, and perhaps you could begin with a brief summary of the life and works of the man you identify as the most creative and noteworthy thinker of the 18th century French Enlightenment. His ideas more far-reaching than those of his fellow philosophs Voltaire, Montesquieu, and Rousseau. Begin with the story of his life, and we will get to the history of his ideas and his place in the firmament of letters. Well, I think the nicest way to start to understand Diderot's life is to actually split it right down the middle. He lived about 70 years, and after 35 years, uh, he was arrested and sent to prison in 1749. This is really the dramatic pause in his life that gives shape to both sides of his life. He's arrested after writing an atheistic tract called The Letter on the Blind. He had also published a book called The Indiscreet Jewels, which is something of a prototype of the vagina monologues and a satire of court life at Versailles. Now, how does he get here? Well, for the first 35 years of his life, um, he is uh, somebody we don't know too much about. He's born in 1713 in a small city, not too far from Dijon, called Langres, which is L-A-N-G-R-E-S. He's born into a very religious family. His father is a cutler, which is to say somebody who manufactures surgical instruments and knives. And his mother comes from a family of tanners who are working with animal hides. And he's lucky enough to be born into a family where they have enough money to school him in French and Latin, which allows him to go to a Jesuit school, which is right down the street from his town or his city. I should say this is a very, very small city of 8,000 people. It was 8,000 people in the 18th century, and it's about 8,000 people today. It's a walled city, and so Diderot is really kind of literally walled off from the rest of France, in a sense. So he gets this religious education, which to say, uh, with the Jesuit education, he's learning both humanistic type ideas and also theology. By the age of 12, 13, he is tonsured, which to say he becomes an abbot. Uh, So he's kind of destined for an ecclesiastical career er early in his life. And after a few uh, kind of uh, false steps, he takes off to Paris, uh, where he is going to study a little bit more. And he enrolls in the University of Paris at this place called the Collège d'Arcourt, which is a kind of the equivalent of a secondary school for theology. How, and, how old is he? He, at this point, is uh, 14 or so. Okay. His father drops him off and doesn't, they don't see each other for another 13 years or so. Um, so he, he goes to school at this point. There are really no letters left behind from this era. And then he attends the Selbun, uh, where he is going to be actually uh, studying theology and scholasticism, etc. at this point. And after a while, he drops out. Um, and this is in 1735. Uh, he is about 22 years old, and he enters in what we might call a dilettante phase at, at this point. 
He is running around kind of chasing uh, actresses. Uh, this is a time where he meet people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. He will try a few different jobs working as a tutor, working in a law firm or for a law clerk. Um, and he uh, also is going to learn uh, learn um, English and Italian. He's going to be teaching himself. He's fascinated with the world of ideas, even though he's not doing this for a living. And eventually, English does help him become gainfully employed. He becomes a, a translator. And this is uh, in the 1740s. And this leads us up to the time where he starts challenging authority, challenging conventions, and this is the time where he gets arrested in 1749. Now, I split up his life for a reason, because he is kind of associated with low-level literature before 1749, even though he is hired to become the editor of the encyclopedia. When he gets out of jail, he's branded as one of the uh, the, the most notorious free thinkers of, of his generation. Um, and he is told that if he ever publishes the kind of things he published before going to jail, he would be locked up for decades and not months. So he spends three months in Vincennes prison, just outside of Paris, comes back, and he will be spied on by the police pretty much for the rest of his career. And this really changes things for him. On the one, one thing he's going to do is sublimate. He's going to... Uh, not publish single-authored works, such as the kind of works that Voltaire and Rousseau will publish. He will end up doing a lot of collective and collaborative work in particular. He works on the encyclopedia, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later. The encyclopedia is this massive monument, testament to secular thought and the, the dissemination of knowledge uh, during the Enlightenment. It has 74,000 articles, 28 volumes, so 17 volumes of text, 11 volumes of plates. He writes about six or 7,000 articles himself, which is pretty amazing if you think about how hard it is to write an article for a, a newspaper or even a, a class in college. I mean, you have a sentence somewhere early on in your book. If you remember it, uh, uh, let me read it for you. That He has a truly dazzling intellect and quicksilver mind a man who might write on ancient Chinese and Greek music first thing in the morning, study the mechanics of a cotton mill until noon, help purchase some paintings for Catherine the Great in the afternoon, and then return home and compose a play and a 20-page letter to his mistress in the evening. <laughs> a man of immense charm, learning, uh, the embodiment of an era subjecting religion and contemporary mores to withering interrogation. I think that's exactly right. And I think we, you're, you've nicely summed up the two sides of his personality. He's gregarious. He's charming. He's got wonderful warm eyes, a big and a bulbous forehead, and he's an astonishing conversationalist. Um, everyone who talked about his presence uh, rem uh, remarked that he would be He'd always take over a room. He wasn't a great conversationalist, really, I guess I should say. He was more of a talker. And one of his friends said that he didn't have ideas, that his ideas had him. He would chase down an idea and run with it and become completely oblivious to, oblivious to the people around him. And this is why he was a perfect person to, to work on the encyclopedia, because he could bounce around from subject to subject, creating these hyperlinks in his mind like no one else could during his era. Um, and uh, you know, the, his, his, uh, his, his presence, his charm, as I said, was really, uh, really legendary in the... Uh, in his, uh, he starts the encyclopedia when? He's, he gets out of prison in 1749. 
He's already become friends with Rousseau, correct? That's right. R- R- Rousseau even visits him in prison. Mm-hmm. All right, now he's out of prison. He's back in, in uh, Paris. And does he now undertake the encyclopedia? Yeah, well, he'd started off. The encyclopedia had a couple of false starts, and he was hired as a kind of an editor, translator in, se- in 1747, so two years before he's locked up. And eventually he's named, uh, or he's actually hired a little heart before that, but in 1747 he's named the co-editor of the encyclopedia. So paradoxically he has the status of somebody who's going to make a lot of money for the publishers at this point and also carry the torch of French kind of national pride as well. And at the same time, as I said, he was branded as this kind of free thinker and a libertine thinker. So he had kind of a funny, funny uh um, uh, 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 reputation at this point. So after he gets out, though, he really will spend full time. He devotes his, his life to the encyclopedia for the next 20, year, 20 or so years where he'll be working full time. And a lot of things happen during this time. The encyclopedia is banned on two occasions. By the late 1750s, the 150 collaborators who were participating in this republic of letters and this gigantic project to create this this enormous repository of knowledge that was designed to change the world and change the way people thought, most of them drop out. So Diderot is pretty much on his own, along with this workhorse um, friend or kind of one of his semi-friends, I suppose, named uh, um, uh, uh, Louis de Jocourt, which is J-O-U-C-O-U-R-T. This guy writes 17,000 articles and really kind of saves the encyclopedia, becomes a de facto editor when Diderot's first co-editor takes off. But that man was fairly famous, D'Alembert, right? Right. So the first uh, co-editor, the the two editors were Diderot and D'Alembert. Their names are often paired and very much were paired during the 18th century. D'Alembert was far more famous than Diderot. Diderot had penned these kind of scurrilous, um, uh, scandalous texts, whereas D'Alembert was a member of the Academy Royal of Sciences. He had published these uh, these papers, which were kind of groundbreaking in the area of mathematics. He was kind of a French Newton on a certain level. And so he was really the public face of what this encyclopedia should be. At the same time, he, like Diderot, was at least a skeptic and surely an atheist, and uh, he uh, got into trouble as much as Diderot did by uh, sticking certain articles in the encyclopedia that uh, were not uh, subject to the censor and also being something of a rascal sometimes with some of the things he said. You also say that the, the encyclopedia is filled with humor and irony and juxtaposition where it's questioning... Uh, established authority under various rhetorical pretexts, that it, that it is, in fact, fun to read. Yes. I mean, most of the encyclopedia is pretty straightforward, but people loved reading this because, and they had a lot more time on their hands, and they didn't have, you know, ADD. They uh, would look around and chase down the cross-references to find out what Diderot and D'Alembert had done to... Um, snub their noses at the church or various uh, types of received authority. So um, for the notion of communion, the, uh, the uh, uh, cross-reference was to cannibalism. There's a lot of things, a few things like that. After a while, Diderot thought that these kind of uh, wisecracking type cross-references were not a good idea. But there are a lot of other kind of ironic type things, where uh, ironic cross-references where uh, Diderot would be very earnest about something and then refer 
somebody to an article which is precise opposite. So if you look at a religious article and then at the, the bottom of the article, you might f find something like uncertainty as a cross-reference. So that was kind of a mild, mildly ironic type thing. But there are lots of interesting things in there, particularly in the, in the graphic representation of knowledge, which opens up the encyclopedia, where you can see something which is really kind of the, 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 the foundation of the Enlightenment. And Diderot sketches out the way the human mind works. And here we see that religion is subject to the scrutiny of human reason. So normally religion would be seen as not subject to that authority, but Diderot sketches it out in a way where you see that religion and phys um, spiritual causality, superstition, should all be yeah, evaluated. Yeah, I mean, I think he has a, an entry called The Science of God, right? That, <laughs> that's right. So, <laughs> um, And that's precisely in that chart I was talking about. You have to imagine this book is about you know, 16 or 18 inches uh, uh, tall and about 10 inches wide. It's an enormous folio edition. And inside that edition would be this big map that you pull out, which is the map of knowledge. And we think of these charts as being you know, somewhat neutral, but this is one of the most polemical aspects of this book, subjecting the, uh, the authority of Scripture to human reason. It's really the foundation of what's going on in the Encyclopedia Project and the 18th century as a whole. The, it's 25 years to, to compose and put it all together, an enormous work, but under fairly constant attack from the church and the state. I mean, talk about some of the steps taken to silence it or declare it illegal. Or right. I mean, I mean, this is a, a dangerous period for people who hold seditious beliefs. That's that's true. Um, and one of the things about Diderot compared to many other uh, philosophes is that he remains in Paris. Voltaire scoots off first to England and then um, back to, he goes to Prussia and then ends up on the, on the Swiss border uh, so that he can escape if people are coming for him. And Diderot is right there under the nose of the uh, Paris police. It's a tough time. And the encyclopedia was subject to multiple layers of censorship. Um, there was the, the Paris Parliament. Uh, there was, which had this kind of approval of censorship. They, they were the the, 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 uh, the the body that could uh, condemn books and have them burned. So one of Diderot's first books, The Philosophical Thoughts, was burned in front of what is now uh, the town hall in, in, in Paris. And they also condemned the encyclopedia on two occasions. Uh, there was also the Sorbonne, the College of Theology, or the, the Faculty of Theology, where Diderot had actually, which Diderot had actually attended. They also condemned. Uh, eventually, the king uh, also chimed in. The pope chimed in. There's a lot of different people who put uh, the encyclopedia under uh, real scrutiny and also uh, uh, banned it, as I said, on two occasions in the early 50s and later. But what's great about it is and we've recently discovered this. Um, because people have, uh, some scholars have discovered um, a lease from Lyon, which allowed us to understand that what the publishers did was to buy an enormous printing press operation outside of Lyon, in Trévoux. And here's where they printed the remaining volumes of the encyclopedia. So Diderot took the encyclopedia underground. 
He wasn't happy with the final form because he wanted this to be done by a republic of men of letters. That wasn't done. Uh, but he certainly finished the encyclopedia and brought it back to Paris. Well, he didn't, but the, uh, the publishers brought it back to Paris in 1765 after uh, there was a couple of um, uh, uh, strategic deaths that allowed them to bring it back. And here they, they, they kind of won the day against uh, the censors. They brought it back into Paris at that point. But it was really a, a, a very difficult thing, and he thought he was going to go to jail on multiple occasions. And But is it widely read? I mean, how much does it cost? How do they promote it and sell it? I mean, the uh, what's the book business like in, in say, 17... 17- 55, 1760. Well, the book business is big business. I think it's not quite Silicon Valley, but it's something that's incredibly important. It employs tons of people. It's very labor intensive. And the guild of printers had a lot of power. So if you know Paris and the left bank, uh, the Rue Saint-Jacques, the Rue Saint-Jacques, which is not too far from Notre-Dame, was the area which belonged to the printers. And there was a, you know, a certain number of printers, maybe 12, don't quote me, 12 printers or so, uh, who were allowed to practice uh, as, as printers. And what this particular printer did after having a couple of um, uh, missteps, doing a couple of, uh, couple of missteps with the, uh, the first editor's encyclopedia was sent out a, uh, a, 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 a uh, looking for subscribers. He, pers- he published this prospectus and Diderot helped and they sent, out, sent it out to get subscribers. And once they got subscribers, they <coughs> were able to print. Um, they thought they might be printing four, six, eight, ten volumes. And again, it, it just metastasized into this monstrous, monstrous project. Um, and they made a lot of money. One of the reasons that initially this was not banned is because Versailles did not want to uh, uh, clamp down too hard on this big business. Uh, the printers really had a lot of power. They employed hundreds and hundreds of people. The workshop where Diderot's, the first volumes of the encyclopedia were printed and the plates were printed is, uh, on, uh, is, is, is not too far from the Rue Saint-Jacques. And it, at a certain... At, at, uh, in times of high production, there were about 50 workers uh, there, and you have to imagine the typesetting, the paper being manufactured, which is not paper, it's made out of cloth. These are enormously labor-intensive uh, operations where each page is printed by hand and hung to dry and then bound. I mean, there's a bindery, there's all sorts of stuff going on here. This is really a big business, lots of money being made. And it's... It- it's finished when, 1772, something like that? That's right, 1773. That's when the final volumes of plates were... Uh, were, were uh, uh, Pl- plates plates are illustrations of various workshops, of yeah. tools, of, of landscapes, of animals. I mean, illustration of all manner of, of uh, things. Yeah, I should say a word about these illustrations. Uh, uh, people have probably seen them without realizing that they came from the encyclopedia because they are beautiful. As I said, there are 11 volumes of illustrations or plates. And what Diderot did, which was also a real interesting ideological move, was to make the trades in France as important as aristocratic subjects. You have to realize that the the bourgeoisie, the petite bourgeoisie, the workers were really seen as, as intrinsically inferior to the aristocracy. This is kind of obvious, and I'm simplifying here a little bit. But one of the things that Diderot does in this ostensibly neutral display of the country's trades is to show just how important people like his father are to the 
to the, the essence of, of France. And so there are 3,000 beautiful plates of uh, all sorts of different manufacturing processes which Diderot researched or had his, his uh, artist research and draw. They're really stunning. One of the things I love about these things is that there are trades that, are no, that no longer exist. I talked about papermaking. Of course, that doesn't exist in the same way now either. But there are a lot of other trades that we don't even think about, how silver is made, how barrels are made, uh, how uh, certain tools function in particular kind of surgical um, um, situations. And these are all displayed in these wonderful, wonderful uh, arrangements which seem almost surreal and otherworldly because the, the original referent is gone now. All we have are the tools. There are really some beautiful things. And as I said, we've probably, most people listening to this have probably seen these at times in different contexts. Talk about dur during this period of his life, is, is he married? Is he still chasing young actresses? Is he... Is he <laughs> Charming the ladies who manage the Paris Salon? Well, he actually did not, ch uh, um, as I said, he was not great at conversation, so he, he didn't go over too well at the Salon, which is all about intellectual tennis. Uh, he was uh, too much of a bulldog when he started speaking, I think. But he certainly had mistresses. He met a woman named uh, Antoinette Champion, who actually came from an aristocratic family that had fallen on on hard times, or her, her father was um, from an aristocratic family. This originally. is in the 1740s. He's young, still a young man. Oh, that's right. Uh, he's still a young man at this point. And so he marries her. He loves her. We have some of his very drippy um, love letters to her. And she really is uh, not suited uh, to him. As she was in a convent. Uh, as she was barely literate. Uh, um, she, when she gets out, he, he marries her. She's a little older than he is. And, uh, you know, I don't want to do too much uh, speculation about her psychology, but she seemed pretty grouchy most of the time, according to both Diderot and his friends. So he starts, he starts up uh, pretty early in his career in the 1740s with uh, a woman named Madame de Pizot, whom Diderot's daughter said was uh, you know, ugly and awful. Um, but I think she actually played a huge role in his life. She was a woman of letters. And uh, even if she is ugly, as uh, Diderot's daughter uh, said about her, she shows us something about Diderot. He fell in love with people's minds as opposed to you know, sheer beauty. His, the love of his life was not his wife. It was not Madame de Puiseaux. They break up pretty uh, early in his career. Um, he falls in love in the 1750s with a woman named Sophie Volant, or what we know as Sophie Volant. Um, and she is uh, a, a frail, sickly, uh, sickly type person who was essentially a spinster. And he absolutely just fell hell, head over heels in love with her. And this is how we know him best because he left behind uh, just hundreds of fabulous letters about his work about the encyclopedia uh, problems, about the Enlightenment era, about his friends. They're full of gossip, and they're, and they're some of the greatest love letters in the history of the French language, too. It's really, it's really wonderful. So that really was the, the love of his life. Uh, they, they died, actually, very close uh, to each other in, this, in 1784. Um, they had, at that, at that point, their, their love had kind of turned into something that was much more platonic, but they really were their soulmates. Unfortunately, uh, the letters from Sophie to Diderot were destroyed. She uh, demanded that he hand them back, hand them over to her uh, toward the end of their relationship. And 
and she must have burned them. And it's really, really too bad for a number of reasons. First, we'd find out a lot of great gossip about Diderot, but we'd also uh, find out who was it, who was it that, who really seduced this man so fully. He held back from visiting Catherine the Great because he just loved Sophie Volant at one point. Well, when he dies in 1784, he's not uh, famous. I mean, the, the, the people who, the two men who are his, more or less his contemporaries who become famous for the Enlightenment early on are Rousseau and, and uh, Voltaire. They're the figures that are admired by the revolution. Yeah. Whereas Diderot is, in fact, the more revolutionary mind. <clears throat> so talk about his death and then his burial and then what happens to his corpse and then the ascendance of his literary reputation over the last 200 years as we've come to know more of his writing that wasn't being published in the last part of his life. Yeah, now we're really talking about that second half of his life. We talked about the break, and the second half of his life was a time when he practiced self-censorship on the grandest scale. Unable to publish uh, anything really with his name on it, uh, the kind of things he wanted to publish, he, he wrote for what the French say is the drawer. He wrote for the drawer, and in the drawer we have wonderful things uh, on... Uh, natural history speculations. We have Ramo's nephew where he puts an, an anti-hero on stage who essentially refutes or interrogates the kind of substance and heart of Enlightenment philosophy. We have a meditation on, on determinism in Jacques le Fataliste, Jacques the Fatalist, which is a really interesting uh, uh, anti-novel. And we have, um, we have um, uh, anonymous political writing, which was published in a book called The History of the Two Indies, which is, would have fit perfectly in, into this, this new issue of Laughlin's Quarterly on trade. It's really the history, the first real history of trade. So all this work is sitting around in, in, a, in, 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 a, in, a ch in trunks while he's uh, growing old. And he thinks about himself. You know, he's published or he's, he's, a, he's written a play which is actually quite successful, but, you know, he is a really second-tier or maybe even third-tier writer compared to Voltaire or Rousseau. Voltaire and Rousseau made such an enormous impression on their century while they were alive, whereas Diderot was seen as a vulgarizer of ideas, the great encyclopedist, but not much more than that, and, and, and the author of one uh, successful play. And he kind of grows old and thinking that he will be forgotten, but at the same time, he has this gambit, the gambit of writing for posterity. And I think it works. Uh, the second half of the book is called Late Harvest because uh, what is finally published becomes the greatest late harvest of the 18th century. He's also, I mean, throughout the 19th century, he's the heroic uh, figure of the, of the avant-garde. I mean, Balzac admires him, Goethe admires him, Baudelaire, Stendhal, Karl Marx relies on him, so did Freud. <laughs> That's right. So the, some of the works I referred to here uh, really explode in the 19th century. They trickle out very slowly after Diderot's death. And we can go back to his death here in a, in a few seconds. But they trickle out quite slowly after his death in the 1790s and the 1730s and even the 1790s. We finally get the, fin the final uh, manuscript uh, version uh, of Ramo's nephew. But in, uh, you know, in 17, I'm sorry, in, in after 
World War II, we, we discovered the final cache of Diderot manuscripts where we, where we figure out that he was the ghostwriter for one of the most important books on trade and colonization during the 18th century. Uh, so he really, really had this enormous impact, and he kind of thought that this might happen. He really was, as I said, gambling on posterity, on us. He wanted to talk to us. He wanted to interrogate not only his own era's ideas, but these general universal questions uh, in general. But he, uh, as I said, uh, I would return to, you know, what happens to him. He is kind of feeling quite ill toward the end of his life. He has a congestive heart failure, I think we probably think at this point, and really, really slows down, uh, even though he is still doing some writing right into the 1780s, and he dies in 1784. One of the wonderful things about the way he dies is that uh, his wife was very religious and his family is quite religious. His daughter has become quite religious too at this point. They really want him to convert or at least to accept God fully before he dies, and he does not do this despite the fact that he is perfectly willing to chat uh, amicably with a priest who is sent to try to um, flip him to the light side. And uh, the, his final moments come the day after he announces to his daughter that skepticism is the first step toward truth. It's the last thing she hears from him. And the next day, apparently, according to his wife, he was having a terrific meal of, of mutton stew and wanted some cherries. Uh, and his wife said, don't eat. And he said, yeah, what, what harm can I do now? And he reaches out, for, reaches out for some cherries and dies right there, reaching, going for pleasure. So he's the Epicurean, always uh, looking for pleasure, and this is how he, he goes out. Um, his family really does a good job with the burial. They were able to pay off a bunch of priests, and so the great atheist Diderot is taken to the uh, Église Saint-Roch, the Church of Saint-Roch in, in, in Paris where he's buried, and remains in a crypt until probably 1793, at which point grave robbers run into the church, break into the church, and steal the lead from his coffin and toss him onto the floor, what remains of him onto the floor. And so Diderot probably joined uh, a big pile of aristocratic, aristocratic corpses at this time, and uh, his remains disappear. Uh, it, but that's okay because he's a materialist. But his remains disappear, but his books and his ideas continue to gain ascendance. You know, that's the, the interesting thing. Um, well, the revolution is going on. There's kind of two step stages here. Well, the revolution is going on. The revolutionaries really shun him. He was the author of an article called Political Authority in the Encyclopedia, which says, you know, no man is, has the right to govern by nature, which is a, uh, or by essentially an article which questions divine right. Um, this is, becomes very important for the revolutionaries, but he's never given any credit. And in particular, Robespierre absolutely loathed him for two reasons. First, Diderot was often seen or mm, seen as, as spending time with aristocrats, which was absolutely true. The monarch, Catherine the Great, he visits. So he was seen as kind of paling up to the wrong people by Robespierre. And the second thing is he's an atheist. And Robespierre understood that the revolution could not survive if it, if it claimed atheism as its, one of its kind of primary elements. They needed some kind of spiritual causality religion, even natural religion, to replace the Catholicism, the national Catholicism, Catholicism which was uh, what was the, uh, the kind of 
the rule of the day at the time. The reign of virtue. The reign of virtue. So that's right. So Robespierre, you can't have a reign of virtue um, without God, according to Robespierre. Yeah. His God was, Robespierre's God was Rousseau's God, kind of the natural deist type uh, God. Let's come now to a couple of the other ideas. The, the, uh, you talk about the late harvest. How does he answer the question of what is virtue and what is vice? And how, and I, somewhere you have the wonderful phrase that the, uh, he maintains that all humans are inescapably drawn to the beauty of doing good, that moral action is beautiful in and of itself, and that they bring with them a sense of freedom, beauty, truth, and the good. <laughs> I mean, that's a, a very powerful idea. It is a powerful idea. It's a very optimistic idea, which he will uh, kind of call into question in Ramel's nephew. But Diderot was among those deists and then atheists who really believed in natural morality and a kind of ethical naturalism, the idea that we are maybe not programmed to do good, but good is so beautiful that we're drawn to it. We get pleasure when we do good. We uh, actually feel pain when we see suffering or cause suffering. And this is the kind of hardwired system that we have inherited as humans, which make us um, you know, superior to animals uh, for the first thing, and second, uh, according to Diderot this is, and uh, um, able to come up with a system which does not need God. Re morality during the 18th century was revealed morality. Morality came from the church, enforced by the church, taught by the church, and so coming up with this idea of natural morality is a heretical idea because you get rid of the need for scripture. You can actually just appeal to the human condition for the source of morality. He actually calls into question this whole notion of natural morality in Ramo's Nephew, which is, if you're going to re read one book by Diderot, this might be the one. So interesting. Uh, Ramo's I, Nephew... I, the, uh, I, I've given that book as presents at least 20 <laughs> times. That's in my, great. In the course That's of great. my lifetime. That's right. wonderful. Yeah, Ramo's Nephew is this wonderful book. You, you can't read it enough because it's so, such a slippery uh, text. But Ramo, uh, Jean-Francois Ramo, is a kind of a ne'er-do-well. Uh, in the new translation of Rambo's Nephew by Kate Tunstall, which is fantastic, uh, he's called a scumbag by her, which really shows the vulgar side of the way this text was envisioned. And he embodies a selfish, body-driven morality. And this comes into contrast with Diderot, who's actually the other character here. Diderot's really quixotic, super optimistic understanding of the human condition, and Rambo's Nephew says, you're stupid to think this. You're depriving yourself of so much pleasure. The real smart thing to do in life is to roll around on beautiful women, gorge yourself on great food, and act like a, a spoiled banker. So, I mean, this is a text which is really uh, very uh, pertinent these days, I think. <laughs> yes, indeed, indeed it is. The uh, last question, the, Diderot says something. He has advice for the insurgents in America. Do you, do you remember what that is? Sure. So again, this I mean, it's the American Revolution is right. going on, and, and the, uh, he's asked for how does he think it was, it's going to work out. Well, Diderot was a great Americanist. He thought the American Revolution was a terrific idea and had been an early supporter 
And in the 1770s, when he was ghostwriting this book on the history of colonization, of course, the United States, the fledgling United States, this, this experiment in democracy was coming into, into focus in France. It was really a really interesting thing and a, obviously a model for what happens later on in France. And Diderot said, I'm too old to visit, but I would love to go to Philadelphia and meet these wonderful Quakers and see the, the power of this new nation, which is, you know, has as much power as a monarchy, and yet it is, uh, has the, the, all the wonders of a, of a democracy. And he says, I do have some advice for the American insurgents, the revolutionaries. It's lovely he calls them insurgents. And he said, you know, the United you know, you're, you're, you're a young country. You should never give up any of your freedoms. But the, the threat to your country is not going to be coming from foreign powers. It's going to be coming from within. It's going to be coming from the inequality uh, of wealth, wealth inequality. It's going to come from the rise of a, of a, of a spoiled, bloated, uh, privileged superclass, upper class that will scorn the values of the republic. And he actually even conjures up the possibility of a despot taking over at some point. Again, uh, really interesting advice written in the 1770s. I mean, yeah, yeah it, would, it would work today. <laughs> it would work today. I mean, the uh, same thing can be said of uh, the powers currently in office in, in Washington and Wall Street. What The uh, last question now. Well, first of all, I assume that were Diderot available, you, you would invite him to Wesleyan as a guest lecturer. Uh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> he would be, I'm not sure what department, he'd be in all departments, from all the science departments, all the humanities departments, he'd be everywhere. Would there be any cry raised against him by people feeling that he is threatening their safe space? <laughs> you know, Diderot, I think, would be okay because he was a, he had some good cred as a social justice warrior, so I think he'd be okay. He really was one of the first uh, abolitionists so I think that would get him, you know, he has a big mouth, but I think that, would, that he would be, uh, still survive in, in this era. Well, thank you. Thank you, Andrew Curran, for speaking with us today about your book, really wonderful book, Diderot and the Art of Thinking Freely. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.